0: Our podcast is brought to you by We Push Back. In the last few years, a certain genre on social media has been plagued with informants who misrepresent the truth to benefit themselves. They've gone unchecked for far too long. This smoke and mirrors routine is what has plagued the criminal justice system, resulting in many wrongful convictions. We Push Back is about bringing attention to these informants who have little regard for the truth and offering a voice to all those impacted by their lies. This website will work as a united hub, bringing all related information to one portal. We Push Back. Welcome back to A View from Mulberry Street. I am Matthew J. Mary, your host. You know, recently we did. Couple of episodes on Thanksgiving, gratitude, and respect. And both of those episodes are very important to me. Um, we got a lot of positive feedback. But then again, there are always those who say, Hey Matt, we don't want to hear how much you love people. We don't want to hear how much you love God, we don't want to hear mo- how much you respect people. We want blood! We want blood! Oh, do you? Well, people always ask me, they say, Matt, do you know where the bodies are buried? The answer? No, I don't. But I do know where the bodies have been splattered on the streets. So today... We're going to start off by doing some stuff about famous mob hits, and most of it is from recorded history. I'm going to try to see on each of these if I could plug in something a little personal about it, as comes from me, especially. And the first one is about a famous guy from Brooklyn and Manhattan, who was a street guy who ran the rackets back in the 1920s. He was, in fact, during that period of time, in his 20s. His name was Frankie Yale, also known by his real name, Frank I-O-L-A, and he was also known as Francesco Uale. But Frankie Yale was a genuine big shot in the roaring 20s. People like Al Capone worked for him. Before Al Capone went to Chicago, uh, he worked for Frankie Yale. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Frankie Yale because you could get that in a history book. You could go on the internet and there's tons of stuff about Frankie Yale. You know, Um, He came from Calabria, as did all of my ancestors. I happened to have a connection to Frankie Yale. He was murdered on July 1st, 1928. And it was the first time at that time that a, a Thompson submachine gun had ever been used in any kind of murder, any kind of street crime, public assassination, and uh, the Thompson submachine gun that was used to kill Frankie Yale was also used in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the famous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. They blame that one on Al Capone. And a lot of people blame the Frankie Yale murder on Al Capone. It seems that history tells us they had some kind of falling out. Frankie Yale's funeral in 1928 was the biggest public funeral ever up to that time and maybe up to this time. There were 38 flower cars, so that's not counting all the dozens and dozens and dozens of people who followed in vehicles, limousines for miles uh, to pay tribute to Frankie Yale. I want to tell you what I, Matthew Mary, who's born in 1950, has to do with Frankie Yale. If there were no Frankie Yale, there would be no Matthew Mary. Why? My grandfather, Rocco, my mother's father, who was the most legitimate, square guy you could ever meet. This guy wouldn't spit on the sidewalk, okay? Um, my grandfather, during the Roaring Twenties, he was about 15 years old, and he was driving, believe it or not, he was driving a beer truck, you know, back in Prohibition. He was driving a beer truck for Frankie L., And what happens? Something happened that night. And my grandpa, this 15-year-old kid, he gets arrested. gets arrested for murder. Wow. He don't know. He swore to me years later. He said, man, not only did I not do it, I didn't even know about it. I did not know something like that happened that night. Grandpa's in jail. And a big shot lawyer comes to see him. Uh, He was like the Bruce Cutler of his time. I forget his name. He's a very famous lawyer. And he comes to my grandfather and tells him, I am your lawyer. And grandpa says, well, I I can't afford you. And uh, the lawyer says, don't worry about it. The big shot lawyer takes the case. Uh, The case is dismissed. When my grandpa got the case dismissed, He asked the lawyer, how am I going to pay you? It was $500 back in 1925. And the lawyer said, go see Mr. Frank in the social club. And my grandfather went to Frankie Yale's social club and he met Frankie Yale. And he asked Frankie Yale, you know, thank you for getting me out of this, but how am I going to pay you? And Frankie Yale said to him, you don't worry about how you're going to pay me. I'll worry about that. And he told my grandfather that from that point on, he would be working for the sanitation department, okay? And he would be making $25 a week during the Depression, which was quite a handy sum. And he would have to pay $5 back to Frankie Yale until the $500 was paid, My grandfather was ecstatic. Later on, he transferred from the sanitation department to the parks department, where he's a motor vehicle operator, and spent 45 happy years at the parks department, all because of Frankie Yell. And when my grandfather found out that Frankie Yell had passed away, he went to the social club, and he said to the first guy he saw, he said, who, who do I pay this $5 to from now on? And the guy put his hand on Grandpa's shoulder and said to him, Kid, get the hell out of here. You don't have to pay anybody anymore. Just turn around and keep walking. Don't come back. And Grandpa kept walking, didn't come back, and was a totally legitimate guy, a square, thanks to Frankie Yale. Well. After Frankie Yale passed away, uh, a lot of the Italian gangs that had developed during, uh, during the, the turn of the century seemed to be having a lot of trouble with each other, seemed to be fighting a lot with each other. you got to remember, these gangs developed so that these people could have kind of a clan to, to, to come together to protect themselves from each other and other ethnic groups like the Irish, like the English, like the Germans. You know, there was a lot of ethnic fighting going on, and the Italians were at the bottom of the barrel. So a lot of gangs developed, and some of these gangs became quite violent. So the Castellamare War is named after the town of Castellamare del Golfo, which is located in Sicily. Many famous people were born in that town. And eventually, a guy by the name of Giuseppe Marciera, also known as Joe the Boss, he became the most powerful man among all the Italian uh, gangs out there in the street. But there was another man, a more distinguished gentleman, a man by the name of Salvatore Maranzano. He came from Castellamaria del Golfo, which, by the way, is a very beautiful town. And I will say to you out there, anyone who visits Castile Maria del Golfo is going to come away with a very pleasant uh, memory, okay? but anyhow, Mr. Maranzano decided that he had had enough of Joe the Boss, Marciera, and so it says history tells us, books recorded tell us that a meeting was set up and Joe Marciera was playing cards with Mr. Charles Lucky Luciano in a restaurant in Coney Island. And when Mr. Luciano decided to go to the bathroom, to go to the men's room, some gunmen came in to this restaurant and they opened up on Joe the boss Maciera. And that was a pretty bloody situation. There are a lot of photos back then, not only of Mr. Maciara in the pool of blood, but also of the cards that he had in his hand. They called it a dead man's hand after that. It was the ace of spades. I think it was a a straight flush. And um, that's the story of Joe Maciara the second spectacular assassination uh, that we want to talk about today. Who is the next guy who gets assassinated? Well, uh, Mr. Maciara, he gets assassinated in April. By the next September, it seems that people were unhappy with Salvatore Maranzano. Okay? So, uh, books and history tell us that Mr. Lucky Luciano... And others uh, decided that Salvatore Maranzano, who had proclaimed himself to be the boss of all bosses, that he should pass away. And so they dispatched a bunch of guys who were dressed as policemen, and these policemen went up to the Hemsley building. 200 Park Avenue on September 10th, 1931. And these gentlemen dressed as police, they not only stabbed Mr. Maranzano and cut his third, but they shot him. They made a Swiss cheese out of Salvatore. It was terrible. And I guess when you declare yourself to be the boss of all bosses, you make a lot of people jealous. You make a lot of people angry. You scare a lot of people. And that was the end of Salvatore Maranzano. But what does it have to do with me? What it has to do with me is that the man accused of killing Salvatore Maranzano was Samuel Red Levine, or Red Levine, however which way you want to pronounce it. And I happened to become a friend of Red Levine. Levine. When I was in my 20s, he was in his 80s. He had something to do with the newspaper union. And I lived across the street from the Journal American slash New York Post. And um, Red Levine also had a bar on Grand Street called The Spot. And Grand Street was just like an extension. It was the Jewish area located next to Little Italy. And so that's where I met Red Levine, oh, Red Levine, the guy who killed Salvatore Maranzano. He's my buddy. He's my friend. How else am I connected to, to Salvatore Maranzano? Well, believe it or not, when I was 17, I knew a guy who's in his late 70s called Mr. Frank. Mr. Frank Bonomo, B-O-N-O-M-O, not to be confused with any bananas even though the government said that he was a captain in the so-called Bonanno family. And Mr. Frank was a gentleman who, at during his young years, he used to drive Mr. Maranzano around. And on September 10th, 1931, Mr. Frank told me that his Gombada came to see him and said to him, Frank, don't go to work today. And Frank, being a very smart man, didn't ask any questions. He just started coughing. He was starting to to really feel sick. He was was choking. He he had a fever. And he called in sick that day. And that was the day that Red Levine killed Salvatore Maranzano. So that's my connection to the uh, Maranzano assassination. Okay, let's move on. What's the fourth incident that's going to interest us? On May 2nd, 1957, Frank Costello, like Albert Anastasia and Frankie Yale, was a Calabrese. Frank and and Albert and Frankie Yale all hailed from Calabria. And um, the people from Calabria, great people, that's where my ancestors come from. It doesn't seem that they fare well when they get to the penthouse. Anyhow, Frank was shot on May 2nd, 1957, but not killed. He was accused at the time of being what they called, not me, I don't call anybody anything, all right? I'm just telling the story and giving my viewpoint about the story. They accused Frank of being the acting boss of what the government now calls the Genovese family. Frank Costello was a close friend of Albert Anastasia. And the government says that Albert Anastasia at that time, 1957, a very important year, all right? At that time, they say Albert was the boss of what they now call the Gambino family. The government and the storytellers say that the assassination attempt on Frank Costello was ordered by Vito Genovese, and they say that the shooting was carried out by Vincent Gigante, also known as the Chin. These two hits, Frank Costello and Albert Anastasia, they go together hand in hand. 1957 was a very big year. I was seven years old then, but 1957 shaped many, many events that lasted into the future, and one event was building on another. So, always keep that year in mind, 1957, because it relates to a lot of things that happen year after year. So, Back in 1957, um, Vito Genovese, they say, was behind the shooting of Frank Costello. Now, I know a lot of people. I didn't know uh, Vito Genovese or Frank Costello, but I know a lot of people who knew them both. I did get to meet, in my lifetime, Vincent Giganti. In fact, I met him several times. Once when I was a very young boy. Remember, I came from the east side. He came from the west side. My relatives knew him and his family, and I got to meet him when I was young, and then I got to meet him as a lawyer, and I got to talk to him. And when I talked to him, Vincent Gigante was well-dressed and very, very intelligent, believe me. He was respectful to me as a lawyer, and I was very, very glad to meet him. Was he sick? Was he sick in the head? I don't know the answer to that. Believe me, I swear. I can only tell you the story. Once I represented one of his doctors, who was subpoenaed before a grand jury to testify about the mental health of Vincent Giganti. And I represented this man, this doctor. He happened to be a Jewish guy. And he told me after receiving the subpoena that he had been debriefed by the agents and that he had told the agents everything he knew about Vincent Giganti, And they still wanted to pressure him and get him to say something different. And what did this doctor tell the FBI agents and the United States attorney that were investigating Vincent Giganti, he said to them in an interview that Mr. Giganti had been his patient for many years. And he said, this guy never spoke a word to him, nor was he able to respond to medical questions. And every time something came up, in reference to his medical care, another family member would have to intervene to make the decision as to what to do. And he told the U.S. attorney and the FBI, he said, this guy, Mr. Gigante, he can't even dial a phone. And the doctor said to me, I've said that already to them, if they want me to take a day off, he said, I make at least $1,500 a day back back then. He said, I'm not taking a day off to repeat that. And I'm not going to change my story because that's the truth. And so, you know, the government was after Vincent Giganti. And uh, by the way, I just want to mention, there's a, you know, they say people would refer to him like that and call him the chin. And people would say to me like Oh, yeah, she has a very prominent chin. But the reason they call him Chen has nothing to do with his chin. It has to do with that his name is Vincenzo. And his mother used to call him Chenzo. And Chenzo got shortened to Chen, Chen, Chen. And then the American kids that he went to school with, they changed Chen into Chin, And that's the story of that. So, um I guess plenty of people know that story. But one thing I could tell you about Vincent Gigante was that he was railroaded by the federal government. And I knew about his case. I mean, I I, I knew I wasn't in his case. I wasn't his lawyer. I knew about his case. And he was railroaded and, and encouraged to plead guilty. And how did they encourage him to plead guilty? They arrested his innocent son for no reason and, and kind of threatened to put his son in jail, too. Uh, eventually, Mr. Triganti decided to plead guilty, even though he was innocent. And Vincent died, like so many others, died in jail. Not nice, not right, not necessary. He didn't deserve that. Now, since we've been speaking of Vito Genovese, let's not forget what I told you in a previous podcast. Vito Genovese had cancer while he was doing time in Atlanta federal prison. That case was a frame-up case. They said that he was involved in the narcotics business, which, you know, just wasn't true. Someone doing time with him told me this story. And the story is that, that Vito Genovese had cancer and the government decided to treat him for his cancer. What did they treat him with? Aspirin. You guessed it. Aspirin. The same treatment that John Gotti got for his cancer. Hey, have some aspirin. This is good for you, you know? It cures cancer, they say. Well, Vito died on St. Valentine's Day, February 14, 1969, and he was in Atlanta in the prison. And they put him in a box, and they sent him to the federal hospital at Springfield, Missouri, dead. He was already dead. And when he got to Springfield, they just signed his death certificate and said, you know, he died after treatment. This is the kind of thing that the government does, and they don't do it once in a while. They do it all the time. And there are guys now, right now, At this minute, who are in their 80s and who've served 20 and 30 years, many of them for things they did not do, and they're sick, and the government wants them to die in jail. You remember my previous episodes relating to people dying in jail. Well, it happened way back then, and it's still happening now. By the way, just to close out that, uh, Frank Costello did retire from everything, and he lived happily ever after uh, in Manhattan, so that was one happy ending. Getting back to Albert Anastasia, he was shot dead in his barber's chair on October 25th, 1957, at the Park Sheridan Hotel in Manhattan. There are too many photos. (laughs) If you want photos, if you want blood, there are so many photos of his body in that barber's chair, and then on the floor in the uh, barbershop. A spectacular hit, which the government attributed to Carlo Gambino, who they said, not me, I don't say any of this. I'm just telling the story. They said that Carlo Gambino was a person who was behind uh, the killing of Albert Anastasia. Vincent. Mangano is another mob hit. We don't have any pictures of that. I don't think, oh, there are no pictures because Vincent was supposedly the boss of what the government now calls the Gambino family, and Albert Anastasia was his underling. And the government says, and the storytellers tell us that Albert Anastasia and Vincent Mangano had an argument and Vincent disappeared. So we don't have any photos of that one. No one knows um, who really pulled the trigger in killing Albert Anastasia. A spectacular and bloody, well photographed murder. Uh, a lot of speculation. A lot of famous names were thrown around: Joey Gallo, Carmine Persico, many, many others. I could just tell you one thing: uh, that it was not not Carmine Persico, because. Junior Persco told me uh, in prison when I represented him that the story was not true and he was tired hearing it. Well, that's about it for now. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye, uh, but before I do, we're going to continue this very same subject next time. So until next time, this is Matthew J. Mary and this is A view from Mulberry Street.